Hey, Spotify, real quick, before we get started, please make sure to follow us right here on Spotify. You might have to click my name, Bob Enyart, to see the follow button. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Bob and Yart Live. I'm the pastor of Denver Bible Church. Tomorrow, we've got Bevelyn of Chaz on the show, Christian gal, amazing young black woman. Also, there's a graphic I'd like to tell you about, the New York Times, Pulitzer, Russia collusion, all that stuff. And there seems to be a growing effort to get Egypt to tear down any pyramid that was possibly built with any slave labor. That should go well. And then we have everything in Darwin's name that needs to be torn down because he was an extreme racist. We got to talk about that. And Jeffrey Epstein was brought to justice, remember, only because of the cops. Only because of the cops. Everyone else had given up and whatever victims there were, tough. But the police were persistent. So thank you, Florida cops. And then after that, we'll get to our continuation answering the atheist argument against Christians called Euthyphro's Dilemma. How could morality flow from God? Is that even possible? Atheists argue, along with Socrates from thousands of years ago, that that concept itself is not even logical. So we'll continue to talk through that. We've gone through the divine command view of morality, and now we're on the divine recognition view. But first, tomorrow we're confirmed, right, with Bevelyn Beatty? Okay. I call her Bevelyn of Chaz. I know it's chop, but in my heart, it'll always be Chaz to me. A Bevelyn of Bevelyn and Edme fame. You may have heard of these phenomenal black gals. They were here in Denver a couple years ago. I met them at the local Planned Parenthood. And then they both got arrested at an abortion mill in Manhattan a few weeks back for protesting and not social distancing, all that, when just a mile away, another day of the week in Manhattan, there were thousands protesting with the full support of the government. So that's the double standard, and it'll be so great to talk to Bevelyn on tomorrow's episode of Bob and Yart Live right here online at kgovkgov.com and on the radio in Colorado and into neighboring states at America's most powerful Christian radio station, the 50,000-watt AM670 KLTT. Okay, we have a graphic out. It's not time for anything in the news right now, but it is on our Bob and Yart Facebook page and on the Bob and Yart Twitter page. Now, you recall a while back, Facebook took down my page. We had thousands of followers on our Bob and Yart Facebook page, and Facebook accused me of impersonating Bob Enyart. And so I appealed it. 
And of course, they want to see a government-issued photo ID. I sent them a scan of my current Colorado driver's license, and they said that didn't qualify. It had to be a government-issued photo ID. And they were convinced that I was impersonating Bob Enyart because they went on the page to find hate speech. They couldn't find any. So they said, well, this guy must be impersonating Bob Enyart. Anyway, on our website, kgov.com slash dist, D-I-S-S-E-D, there's our list of when we've been dissed. And we've been dissed by the best. Believe me, it's quite a list. I mean, we were deplorable before deplorable was cool. And the IRS refused to grant us a nonprofit license long before Lois Lerner was a gleam in Obama's eye. So it does make it challenging, but we'll put this graphic on KGov, and it is on our Facebook page and our Twitter account. And it's a picture of the Mona Lisa. And there's a weird, meaningless line drawing on it, big, thick, black line. And it's connecting these, well, dots, I guess, her eyes, her two eyes, connecting her pupils. Then it goes down to the right to connect her left nostril. Then way off to the right of the background, and there was a dot there that the line is going to. Then way to the left of the image, to her right, and again on the background, and then up to about the middle of her forehead, but in the background. And it's just these weird connected line segments. And the headline says, New York Times wins 2018 Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Now that's interesting because the Pulitzer, I don't think they have one for fiction. But they did that year. New York Times wins 2018 Pulitzer Prize for fiction for connecting the dots on Trump-Russia collusion. And then in small print off to the right, only some dots don't connect. So they connected the dots, but they connected dots that don't connect. So in the bottom right of this graphic of the Mona Lisa, in a way, we felt a little bad marking up Leonardo da Vinci's masterpiece. But in the bottom right, real small, subtle, sort of hard to see at first. You got to put it full screen, but there's a kgov.com slash Russia. And on our Russia landing page, we decided to put this image, so it's there also, where you read murdering millions or losing a campaign. Murdering millions or losing a campaign, which is the last straw for the Democrats? As long as the former Soviet Union was only guilty of murdering millions of their own people, leftists had a warm place in their heart for Russia. Let them imagine, though, the Russians tilting one election and their disapproval rages. Ironically, the actual Russia campaign collusion was when the DNC and Hillary Clinton paid millions for a foreign spy to collect anonymous Russian disinformation in hopes the dossier would interfere with the election. Thus, the New York Times won the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction by ignoring the real ones and connecting dots that never actually connected. So that's, of course, extremely obvious. And also on this Russia page, and really it's Russia 
from the perspective of America. But there's another headline on this page, Liberals Hate Anti-Communists. Liberals Hate Anti-Communists. And it says there that liberals have a hard time understanding where communists are, let alone what communists are. Hollywood hates anti-communists like Senator Joe McCarthy, the John Birch Society, which I'm not a fan of, but the John Birch Society and the House Un-American Activities Committee, not one of which ever murdered a single person, whereas they always had a soft spot in their hearts for the godless communist Soviet Union that killed about 20 million people. Until that is, until they lost a single election. And then everything changed. So that page, kgov.com slash Russia, it's our BEL Russia landing page, and it links to all kinds of interesting, you know, kgov.com slash socialism. Russia fears the U.S. missile shield. They actually said they thought our missile shield was targeted at them, aimed at them. I didn't know you could aim a shield. Unless you're Captain America, of course, and if you click on that link, you see a great picture of Captain America. And yeah, he could aim a shield, but I don't think most do. And then Russian scientists who've helped make our creationist arguments here at Bob and Yurt Live and Real Science Radio. Also then, there's not much of an update on efforts to get Egypt to tear down the pyramids any that were possibly built with slave labor. We'll keep tabs on that effort for you. And then everything in Charles Darwin's name has got to go. He was an extreme racist, placing blacks next to apes on the evolutionary hierarchy with, of course, his own white Europeans at the top, most advanced. And he wrote, and you could see all this, kgov.com slash racist Darwin, racist hyphen Darwin, kgov.com slash racist hyphen Darwin. And he wrote that these inferior races, the ones that are closer to apes, will be either exterminated or replaced by the superior races, the more civilized races. I mean, how could that be, right? By definition, how could a more civilized race exterminate some other race? But that was Charles Darwin in his godless mind. But he thought it would be better to have a wider gap between people and animals. And when the civilized races either just replaced by survival of the fittest or actually exterminated blacks and other minority races... Well, then there would be a wider gap, he writes. In his book, The Descent of Man, in fact, on page 156, and that book was the sequel to his famous Origin of Species. And by the way, in Origin of Species on the title page, it uses the phrase, the favored races. Preservation of the favored races in the struggle for life, the origin of species, by Charles Darwin, so he was an intense racist, and it became a family business to promote eugenics and try to get rid of 
the inferior races by breeding them out or by sterilizing them, get rid of the inferior races. This became a Darwin family business, the origin of the eugenics movement. So everything Darwin has got to go. And then also just a reminder to folks, now that Jeffrey Epstein's madam, his procuress, is in prison, and hopefully she won't be killed, because obviously she has the dirt on scores of very wealthy and very powerful people. But Jeffrey Epstein was brought to justice only because of the cops. And we've taught our kids, we've raised seven sons, we've taught them to respect the police, obey the police, comply with a policeman's order for as much as you're able to. And even back when I was commonly being arrested and thrown in jail, I've spent six months in jail, even back then, as I'm going to jail, and we believe for unjust purposes, we've told our kids, respect the police, obey the police, be thankful for the police. And that is our white privilege. I mean, that is part of the white privilege, that our kids are taught that while so many other kids are taught by leftist cultural influencers to hate the police, kill the police, despise the police, and don't trust the police. So there's white privilege. And also that Caucasian kids are taught don't hate other people because of the color of their skin. Don't be prejudiced against other people because of the color of their skin. Remember for years when somebody, you got to go back decades for this, but somebody was accused of being a racist and there'd be a natural response, which became a joke and a mockery and they couldn't say it. Because if you said this, you were an automatic racist. They'd say, well, you're a racist. And you say, how could I be a racist? Some of my best friends are blacks. And that would prove that you're right. That proves you're a racist. You see, it's more obvious today. And many conservatives have made this point that in the Black Lives Matter mindset, whites are inherently racist. They can't be not racist. Black Lives Matter is a racist organization. Systemically, organizationally, the cops are not racist. In fact, organizationally, white cops are not racist. Black Lives Matter is racist. And so it was perfectly valid to respond to a claim that you are racist by saying, some of my best friends are blacks. And so when you couldn't say that back in the 90s, and I was almost never called a racist, even though I was a outspoken conservative Christian, because the few times anybody in the media, I'm on a talk show being interviewed, and they say I'm a racist, and I ask, well, am I a racist because I love blacks? Is that why? or because I respect them, or because I honor blacks, or because I believe that whites and blacks, Hispanics, and all people in the world were made by God in his image? I mean, are any of these, is this why I'm a racist, or is it because I'm winning an argument with a liberal, and that's really the only reason you would accuse me of racism? And that is 
that's a good point. If you love, honor, respect, value blacks, but you're winning an argument with a liberal, you are a racist. So I would never say, this is back in the 1990s, we've been on the air for 30 years now, I would never say some of my best friends were black. I knew you couldn't say that. So I would say some of my best blacks are friends. So how could I be a racist? Some of my best blacks are friends. You know, you have whites and blacks who work for you. And you don't hang out with the whites, but you hang out with the blacks. So there you have it. To mock the racist arguments that are designed to put down other people, but the arguments themselves are inherently racist. Only whites could be racist is, of course, racist. And blacks cannot be racist. That's dehumanizing to blacks. It's dehumanizing. But the left doesn't care because it's motivated by rage. And it doesn't care if its welfare mentality will destroy another million black families. It couldn't care less. If trillions of dollars of welfare have all but destroyed the continent of Africa, the left couldn't care less. And sadly, to show how good they are, the Republicans, including our Republican presidents, always outspend the Democratic administrations that preceded them, even on social programs. That's just the way it is, because they want people to know, even the Trump family, they want people to know that they care about poor people, so they want to make sure there's a lot of money available for poor people, and that, of course, destroys poor people. It doesn't destroy most of the successful white families who pay the taxes, but the welfare, the recipient, sees way more of their families destroyed than the ones who are paying for the welfare. Now that we have current events out of the way, let's go back 2,500 years ago to the time of Socrates, this pagan Greek philosopher. His students, Plato, Aristotle, they're the ones that helped to ingrain these pagan ideas of fate, fatalism, immutability, exhaustive foreknowledge, going back to the pagan Sumerians and the Babylonians, the idea of fate, or as pagan philosophers also called it, providence, that the future was settled and God could not change in any way because if he changed in any way, he could not be God. However, God the Father became the father of a son with two natures. So clearly, God could change. In fact, in Isaiah, God says, I became your Savior. And Christian theologians since Augustine have said that God cannot become anything. If God became anything, that would be a change. He cannot become anything. And that, of course, is totally contrary to the Bible. So pagan Socrates, his student Plato, his student Aristotle, really hurt Christian theology when Augustine, most of a millennium later, came along and wrote in his book Confessions that where the Bible is difficult, he interprets it in light of Plato. And then lo and behold, all the problems in the Bible go away, and we know what the Bible says because you interpret it through the filter of Greek philosophy, pagan Greek philosophy. So that's a commitment to pagan Greek philosophy, which is used then 
to trump the Bible's clear and repeated teachings and to interpret all of those clear and repeated teachings in the light of the pagan Greek philosophical claim that the future has to be settled because the deity is utterly immutable and cannot change in any way whatsoever, and even his knowledge cannot change, because if his knowledge changed, he would change. Therefore, nothing can happen in the future that he does not already know. That is the source of Calvinism, and it's the source of the settled future. So Socrates had a discussion, at least we get this from the Dialogues of Plato, that his teacher had a discussion with a prosecutor who was headed to court in Athens to prosecute his own father for murder. And they end up having a discussion about morality and how could there be such a thing as absolute morality? And so Socrates ends up presenting this dilemma called Euthyphro's Dilemma because the prosecutor, the state's attorney, his name was Euthyphro, So the dilemma is this, is something good because God recognizes it as good, or is something good because God commands it that it is good? So something like humility. Does God see humility and say, yeah, I recognize that as good, or does he command it? So we've talked through these two views. The first is called the divine command view, and some Christians through history like John Dunn Scotus, have adopted this view, and it's super destructive. And atheists make a very good point when they say, if Christians are going by the divine command view, then the Ten Commandments could have just as easily been the opposite of what they are. The shall nots could have been the shalls. Thou shall murder, thou shall steal, thou shall commit adultery, thou shall bear false witness against your neighbor. And, of course, that makes a mockery of morality because, as we have discussed in the previous programs on Euthyphro's Dilemma, morality is like truth in that it's non-contradictory. Truth is non-contradictory. Something cannot be true and false at the same time and in the same way, and so, too, with morality, something cannot be moral and immoral at the same time and in the same way, so the church should never have sold indulgences, the Roman Catholic Church, by arguing, well, if God could just as easily say, thou shall commit adultery, then if somebody gives the church enough money, here you get this license where you could sin. And it's not going to hurt you any because God has authority over what is right or wrong. And therefore, as his representatives on earth, the church has that authority because he does delegate authority. That is true. He does. So that whole argument, it's unbiblical. It's morally inconsistent. It's corrupt. And atheists are right to join the countless Christian theologians who say that view is corrupt. That's false. So then there's this recognition view. Well, God doesn't command. He doesn't just decide that murder and bearing false witness, perjury, are bad, he recognizes that they're bad. But then there's this twist about that. Is God recognizing something is good by applying it to a standard and seeing that, well, this behavior, humility, 
by the standard I used to judge, humility is a good thing. So God recognizes humility as good, but then if that standard was something outside of God, above God, then that standard would have higher authority than God has. And so we would recognize that there's something wrong with Christian theology, and so that too is valid. That is also valid. It's a valid objection. If there's an authority above God, then Christian theology is not true. And then there's this issue of, could God himself know whether he is righteous or wicked? Let's say Allah, the God of Islam, the imagined God of Islam, because Allah doesn't exist. But let's say that's what God really was like. He was a Unitarian God, not a triune God. And Allah thought, I'm good. Why not? Who doesn't think that? I'm good. And he told his followers to have their sons blow themselves up, killing the children of those who were not Muslim. And you ask, well, is he doing this because he's good or is he doing this because he's evil? And it turns out that a Unitarian God, unlike the triune God of one God and three persons, a Unitarian God could not know if he was actually good. He might be evil and consistently evil, just tell himself that that's good. Or maybe he might be good, but he couldn't know if he was good. He could know for sure, though, if he were evil if, in fact, he contradicted himself morally. If he contradicts himself morally, he could know that he were evil. And we also discussed Jesus himself saying in John chapter 5, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not credible. So if there is an Allah, if he were a real God, he's not, and he said, hey, I'm good, well, it's not credible. You can't know that you're good. You could be evil and know that you're evil and just lie about being good. That's why the Bible from beginning to end teaches that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. It's not unlike Einstein's theory of relativity in some respects because you need a frame of reference and you need multiple frames of reference to understand what is happening. Is the entire universe spinning around a point 30 times per minute, or are you in a Russian space capsule and it's out of control? Which is it? Is the universe spinning 30 times a minute, or are you spinning 30 times a minute? So from multiple frames of reference, you have an improving ability to comprehend the truth of a matter by the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter is established. So, of course, a respect for the truth will move people to challenge extraordinary claims, look for corroboration. Now we're up to the part of Euthyphro's dilemma where the recognition view meets the Trinity, and this is really the nuts and bolts of the Christian defense against Euthyphro. Socrates barely touched on the two questions that he raised with Euthyphro. Instead, he's a philosopher. He satisfied himself by demonstrating that this prosecutor who claimed 
exact knowledge of religion and piety, that Euthyphro was thoroughly confused about these matters. And so this prosecutor became a symbol in the dialogue of the masses who were devoted to Zeus and the Greek pantheon of gods. And they could hardly understand, let alone address, such questions. So Socrates destroyed Euthyphro's claim that this pantheon of Greek gods defined absolute morality by all he had to do was observe, observing that the gods were admitted to have hatreds, enmities, indifferences, the Greek gods. They opposed one another. They contradicted one another. So refuting any claim that those quarreling gods could present a cohesive moral absolute, that was simple. Well, Christianity agrees with Socrates, his logical refutation of Greek paganism. The Bible doesn't assert that all religion is true. Quite the contrary, that Jesus himself is the truth. And he claimed, no one comes to the Father except through me. By the testimony of our Lord and the corroborating evidence that he claimed, we Christians reject Allah. Socrates' insight helps in that rejection because if Islam's deity is himself the standard of goodness, then how could he know that he's correct? If the jihadist claim that he exists were true, perhaps he commands his martyrs, in quotes, his martyrs, to intentionally target their fellow citizens, and even other Muslims, not because he's righteous, but because he's evil. Unlike the gospel writer, Muhammad did not report anything similar, any kind of courageous sentiment that if Allah testifies concerning himself, his testimony is not credible. Of course he wouldn't say that, because there was no other testimony for Allah, just Allah. For a theme of the Christian scriptures, a theme, is that two or three witnesses establish a matter. So a Unitarian deity like Allah inherently lacks the ability to offer and even to consider for himself the requisite eternal corroborating testimony such as the three persons of the Trinity can provide. So we looked at the divine command view. Now we're looking at the recognition view. And here, the recognition view meets the Trinity. So the question is, can the plurality of the Trinity withstand the accusation, which is very effective against a deity like Allah, a Unitarian deity, that if God presents himself as the standard of righteousness, he would have no perspective from which to know whether his own claim were justified or not. The Unitarian deity, who is consistently cruel and unjust, could command willing servants to commit murder and rape, as Muslims have done for centuries with sex slavery 
and that could be presented as in harmony with his character. But give a Unitarian deity his due, okay? If such a one existed, he could, in fact, evaluate his own consistency on matters that he identified as moral. If you have inconsistency in non-moral matters, that can be fine. That can be positively creative, such as putting one moon around the Earth, none around Venus, and two around Mars. Fine. Inconsistency on moral matters, however, indicates immorality. So even a theoretical Unitarian deity could know that he were inconsistent morally and then condemn himself. I mean, theoretically. However, could he know that he were righteous? If he claims that all his inconsistency occurs only in amoral circumstances, that characterization might be right or wrong, and without eternally corroborating testimony, the Unitarian deity cannot make his case. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not credible. So if Allah did exist and had been eternally consistent on everything, he could not satisfactorily prove even to himself that he was not consistently evil. Enter the Godhead. Literally. If Christian theology had invented the plurality of God, the triune God, three persons in one God, think about this. If Christian theology had invented the plurality of God in order to refute Socrates, right? You have a religion, Socrates makes an argument against your theology, and so you want to respond to it, so you're going to dramatically alter your doctrine by saying, well, God exists in three persons. If that happened, if the Trinity were a reaction to some argument against Christianity, then the temptation would be strong to dismiss the claim as just a convenient secondary assumption. So Big Bang proponents, for example, they realize they have a starlight and time problem more severe than biblical creationists. Because for the Big Bang advocates, the entire cosmic microwave background radiation called the CMB of the universe, it's at a virtual equilibrium of 2.7 degrees Kelvin. And by orders of magnitude, even a 20 billion year old universe would not have enough time for the temperature to even out to this even background temperature. So they invent a secondary assumption to put the explosion of the universe into instantaneous hyperspeed and to then almost instantly pull it out of hyperspeed. The inflationary period, it's hardly a scientific theory without any describable mechanisms of acceleration and then deceleration this has left the virtually magical inflationary period, it's called, gradually losing support among astrophysicists. 
So unlike the inflationary period that was designed to rescue the Big Bang Theory, the plurality of persons in one Christian God is not a secondary assumption or an afterthought. The evidence for this divine plurality not only permeates the New Testament, but also appears through the Old Testament. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That appears in the very first chapter of Genesis. And the very first verse of the Hebrew Scriptures uses a plural subject with a singular verb. Think about that. In the beginning, God, Elohim, the plural word for God. In the beginning, God, Elohim, singular verb, created the heavens and the earth. The I am suffix on Elohim, that indicates plural. Like with cherub, if you have more than one cherub, it's cherubim. More than one seraph, it's seraphim. El and Elah are Hebrew singular words for God. Okay, although Elah could be dual in number, there's uncertainty on that. As compared to Elohim, which Scripture uses thousands of times, tenfold more often than singular references, yet it's the one God of the Hebrew Scriptures used with a singular verb. Billions of copies of the Bible have been published in a thousand languages, and it's hard to maintain that the very first sentence of the original by the author of the books of Moses, who used Elohim 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis alone, that he was making a grammatical mistake. Skeptics have argued that the musings of Jewish prophets were just the idiosyncratic beliefs of a minor tribe among thousands of such tribes. But 4,000 years later, the billions of monotheists among the world's major religions trace their belief back to a single human being, back to the God of Abraham. The Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, also uses the plural Elohim, and the Hebrew word translated one, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's not the expected term, yakid, for one. And it's not even another Hebrew word, which to us sounds weird. It's the word bad in English, transliterated, B-A-D. That term means a singularity. But the word in the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Hebrew word for one is ikad. It's one in plurality. The Hebrew scriptures never once use the primary term for a singularity, yachid, to refer to God. Not one time. You'd think. I mean, the main emphasis of the Hebrew religion is that there is one God compared to all the pagan nations around them that had a multitude of gods. In the Hebrew religion, where they worship the God of Abraham, there is only one God, so why not use the Hebrew word for one, Yahid, to refer to God? This is the central passage 
to all theology based upon the God of Abraham, and it uses ikad, which is used at times to mean simply one, but also commonly refers to a one in plurality, as used by God before the Tower of Babel. Remember that? He said the people are one. And by Joseph, remember he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. Pharaoh had two dreams, and Joseph said the dreams of Pharaoh are one. In other words, one of plurality. There are more than one, but you view them appropriately as one. By Moses, the people answered with one voice. You go all the way back again to the beginning of Genesis at the institution of marriage, and they shall become one flesh. Isn't that beautiful? Ikad, the one of plurality. A triune theme flows throughout our perception of the universe. Flows throughout our perception of the universe. Space exists in three dimensions, height, width, and length, as does time in past, present, and future. We experience matter in three states, solid, liquid, and gas. The electromagnetic force operates in positive, negative, and neutral. The three primary colors in pigment are red, blue, and yellow. Now, in light waves, the three primary colors are red, green, and blue. And these combine to create the full rainbow of virtually infinite hues. Mathematically, values are negative, zero, and positive. The triangle is the strongest shape in construction. It's even sturdier than the arch. And why is that? Because if it's going to collapse, it requires typically the failure of all three sides simultaneously. Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman categorizes everything in the physical universe as operating in three different phenomena, electromagnetism, gravitational, and nuclear phenomena. He has this classic book, QED, based on the famous Feynman lectures, and he wrote this, most of the phenomena you are familiar with involve the interaction of light and electrons, all of chemistry and biology, for example. The only phenomena that are not covered by this are phenomena of gravitation and nuclear phenomena. Everything else is contained in this theory of electrodynamics. Is there a limited number of bits and pieces that can be compounded to form all the phenomena that involve light and electrons? Is there a limited number of letters in this language of quantum electrodynamics that can be combined to form words and phrases that describe nearly every phenomenon of nature? The answer is yes. So think about this. Richard Feynman says, take almost everything in nature and you could boil it down to a single number. He says the answer is the number three. So interesting. The Bible teaches of Elohim, the plurality in the one God, that he created our world and said, let us make man in our image. So he imprinted both with his triune nature. 
He made man as body, soul, and spirit in the likeness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Esther could have fasted for two days or four to save God's people, but she fasted for three days. Jonah could have remained in that fish for a day or a week, but three days and three nights prefigured God's plan for Christ's time in the grave. And Jesus arose on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now, atheists reject all this, of course, but by their own claim, they have the burden to show how Euthyphro's dilemma might disprove Christian theology. Not Buddhist teaching, but Christian theology. As Einstein explained relativity, astronauts in two approaching ships may have difficulty determining which is nearing the other. But as a second and third frame of reference is added, more of reality becomes apparent. The sun does not orbit the earth, and neither does the earth orbit the moon. And multiple reference frames from two or three witnesses can establish the matter. Einstein's idea of various frames of reference is an insight into the nature of physical reality. And Socrates, he was groping toward the same truth in the realm of ideas. And this fundamental issue arises also while discussing the plurality of the persons in the Trinity. So after acknowledging that his own testimony should be judged insufficiently credible. Three chapters later, Jesus Christ added, Yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone. I am with the Father who sent me. Now, Christ attributed the writing of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, to Moses as inspired by God. So the observation, quote, from Deuteronomy 19, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established, that stands in Christian theology as more than just a fallible opinion. Because Jesus then added, it is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. That is, it is more credible than one person's testimony. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. So when we make weighty determinations, as when a judge renders a verdict, Moses wrote, one witness is not sufficient. That's Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. But corroboration by the testimony of two or three witnesses can be sufficient. That's Deuteronomy 17.6. Solomon wrote that the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. That's in Proverbs 18. And he also wrote that one can be easily defeated, but two can withstand, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4. So the New Testament also references this standard, not only by Christ, 
but also in the epistle to the Hebrews, the testimony of two or three witnesses. We read that in Hebrews 10, and we see it also at work in Hebrews chapter 2. And by Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, as he writes in 1 Timothy 5, of two or three witnesses. So Christianity asserts that there is one God with two possibilities, that he is true or false, as any of his creatures or their actions likewise may be good or evil. And thirdly, that the threefold witnesses of the persons of the Trinity convincingly testify that God is not evil but good. So I'm going to end this part four of the Christian reply to Euthyphro's dilemma with this. God the Son testifies of his Father that as they have fellowshiped through eternity past, that the Father has never cheated the Son. The Father has never wronged the Son. And the Spirit testifies likewise of the Son that the Son has never been selfish, has never threatened the Holy Spirit, has never wronged him. And the Father testifies of the Spirit, of his eternal love and service. And thus, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So the triune God can know of a certainty that he himself is good. He can know that a Unitarian God could not know that. We will continue this in part five of the Christian answer to Euthyphro's dilemma. This is Bob Enyart, our website, kgov.com. Check out kgov.com slash Euthyphro. May God bless you. Hey, Spotify, thanks for listening. Make sure to visit our website, kgov.com. Also, please make sure to subscribe to the program. If you've enjoyed this episode, Go ahead and tell a friend about us or share the link. We'd really appreciate it. This is Bob Enyart for KGOV.com. May God bless you.